chapter 2 here this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 in this series called Joy-Filled Living. If you remember, the reason we call it uh, Joy-Filled Living because it's about 19 times in the, you know, in four chapters, four short chapters, 104 verses that the Apostle Paul talks about joy. And what makes it so fascinating for us as we've been studying is Paul is writing this from a Roman prison, writing back to a church that uh, ministered to him there in Philippi. And actually, when he was in Philippi, he ended up in prison as well. And if you recall, you know, they don't have government programs. So when Paul uh, was imprisoned, he had to rely on the generosity and the gifts of people. And that was the church back in that day. And so he had complete strangers. It's one of the great blessings we have with Together We Can, the people that, you know, have no connection to the church whatsoever, but they have need. And to be able to be, you know, God's hands extended to people that have need, there's no greater blessing than to be able to serve and to serve in Jesus' name. And so here's Paul. He's excited about what the church has done for him. He wants to uh, appreciate them. Uh, one of the things that the Lord loves and he always blesses is a heart that's grateful. Um, matter of fact, it, it's, the, it's really the thing that marks us as believers as we are so appreciative and so thankful for God's goodness and his grace in our life that we want to show that, that goodness and that grace to other people and demonstrate that thankfulness in our own giving as we minister to meet the needs of others. And so Paul is appreciating that, but he's also writing, and it's kind of the focus of today's message. And I titled it, uh, today's message, uh, Race to the Bottom. And the reason I, I titled it that was it was a number of years ago as I started this book that I'm, I'm completing on marriage. Um, I was listening to uh, a podcast that was on marriage, and the pastor was talking about uh, a marriage relationship is, in the truest sense, he said, it's a race to the bottom. And that got my attention when you think about that. For one, I grew up playing sports. I ran track, and, and I competed in athletics. And so I, I knew, you know, the concept of, of, of a race. And then to think that you're in this in a race in like competition with your spouse to get to the bottom, not to the top. You know, we're, we're taught in life, you know, it's like climb the ladder of success. You've probably heard that expression, you know, in climbing the ladder of success, be careful because you might just get to the top of the ladder. And once you get to the top of the ladder, find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong building. You know, have you ever heard that before? And that that's true in the world sense. Jesus is actually talking about success in the kingdom of heaven is opposite of the world. It's not climbing the ladder. It's actually climbing down the ladder. It's to get to the, the bottom rung of the ladder, so to speak. Because Jesus said it himself. He said, the greatest amongst you is the servant, okay? Being a servant for other people. It's so contrary, though, to the world's systems and the world's ways. So here's Paul in Philippians 2. And remember, you look at this in context. And remember, every letter in the Bible is written to a specific person or it was written to a specific group of people. Paul was writing to a church in Philippi, but he was also writing to two women you can read about in chapter four that he was bringing up that were in a situation where most likely they were experiencing disunity. There was a problem that had arose between them. So he's addressing that. And so again, we have the same issues that face the church today in any church that you walk into. I always remind you, you know, that if, you, if you're looking for the perfect church, stop looking. Okay. And, and for the simple reason is if you find a perfect church, I've told you, please do not go in because as soon as you go in, what's going to happen to that church? It's no, it's not going to get better. That's pride. It's going to be imperfect because we're imperfect people. So as soon as you walk in, even if it was perfect, it would cease to be perfect. Okay. 
Again, we, we need grace. And so Paul is, 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 is encouraging this church. He's encouraging these women to have an attitude within themselves. And, and we're going to we'll read that today. To have the same kind of mind, he says, that was in Christ Jesus. And so again, it's about being humble. It's about being a servant. It's about being sacrificial. Everything that we're going to see, he's pointing to the perfect example, the perfect model that we have in Jesus Christ. But when I, when I thought about the title this last week and I said race to the bottom, like I said, I was thinking about that in a marriage relationship where you have two people, again, that are so different, so unlike each other, which is the same in the body of Christ. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He said, though we're many, he said, we're one, but we're individual parts. We, we're not the same. We weren't, we weren't created by God to be the same. I love that expression that says we were all born originals, but most of us die copies. We're copying the wrong people instead of being unique and being who God's called you to be. And so in this race to the bottom, it's, it's having a relationship, the, the most joy-filled relationships, and that's what it was talking about. The most joy-filled marriages are made up of people who are almost in a competition to see who can outserve the other person. It reminded me of a cartoon. I'm going to date myself, you know, in this. When growing up, I remember a cartoon. It was called Chip and Dale. Is there anybody my age or older? Do you remember this? And they were they were little what? Chipmunks, right? And and it was the the cartoon was designed with regards to etiquette. It was to teach etiquette to children. It was to enforce and reinforce things that a parent would want their child to learn. And I remembered this one episode in particular. And like I said, I still remember it to this day. And, and it, was, it was the Lord quickened it to my mind, thinking about this race to the bottom. And, and, I, and I really understood it because of an event that had happened in my life. Uh, I was raised in, in a home where my dad, we were taught to respect women. We were taught to prefer women. When we came to a door, I still do it to this day, whether it's a man or a woman. If I come to a door and there's somebody behind me, I always stop and I open the door and I invite the person to go in front of me. I, I was just taught that. And I, I, I worked in outside sales. And so I went in and out of buildings all day long. And I walked up to this door and I came and there was a woman. She was about, you know, middle-aged. She was about 10 feet behind me. So I got to the door. I opened the door and I smiled at her and she got to the door and I said, ma'am, after you, and she stopped in the door and she looked at me in disgust and had the ugliest looking facial expression. And she says, I will not. She goes, you just go like that. And I was like, oh, well, that cartoon came to my mind. It's the weirdest things how things happen. Because in this cartoon, whoever, which one it was, Chip would get there first. Chip would get to the door and he'd go, after you. And then his little voice and the other one would go, oh, no, after you. And they went on for like two minutes in this thing. Oh, no, certainly, most certainly, after you. I prefer you over myself. And so finally they go through together. And, and, it was the, and the Lord had brought that to my mind about this concept in marriage, being a race to the bottom, because that's what, what it's all about in an effective relationship in life. If we're going to truly experience God's joy to the degree that he wants us to experience it, we're going to experience it through probably the most opposite means that we would think. Because most of us think that, oh, if I was going to experience joy, that means I get something, right? And you go, no, even Jesus said it, right? It's better to what? To give than to receive. The greatest joy isn't what we get. Have you ever got something and you thought, oh, if I just get this thing, I'll be so satisfied. I'll be so happy. And you get it and you're miserable. Yeah. And so here's Paul telling us in, in Philippians chapter 2, pointing to Jesus like I said, everything, when you open up your Bible, when you read the Old Testament, everything is pointing to the cross in the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, 
Everything points back to the cross. It's always going to be about the cross, the focus of what God has done for us. But if you're going to understand truly what God did for you, it's critical that you understand who he is. Because a lot of times what happens is, you know, when we don't understand who God is, we don't understand what he's done for us. And we get into a relationship with, with God where we think God wants something from us that he's never required from us because we misunderstand who he is. And so what Paul is doing and wanting these women to understand with regard to unity, before you understand what Christ has done for you is to understand who he is. And that's what he begins with here. And, and it has a, such an impact upon our lives. We'll read it together. We'll pick it up in verse five. He says this, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And that at the name, or excuse me, at the, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. I want to take a, a moment there and let, let's just pray. Let's pray real quick. Father, as we read these words here, I pray that Lord, they would sink deep within our heart, that they wouldn't just be words that sometimes we can just gloss over them, but Lord, these would be living words that would impact our life. They would bring us greater joy because Lord, we have a choice today, just like the apostle Paul would, would speak to the church at Philippi. Lord, you're speaking, Lord, to the church here in Bakersfield. We have a choice to make. Will we have the same mind of Christ today? When Paul says, let this mind be in you, Lord, we recognize they had a choice to let that mind be in them. Or, Lord, they could be selfish, or they could be sacrificial, they could be humble, or they could be prideful. Lord, we, we recognize that. And I pray for myself, for us today, that, Lord, we'd choose the right things, Lord, today. That we'd choose, Lord, to follow you. It doesn't make life easy, but, Lord, it definitely makes it joyful. And so I pray for every heart, every home today that, Lord, you would fill us, Lord, afresh with all that we have need of, that our joy would be complete in Jesus as we pray in your name. Amen. You know, Paul, like I said, he gives us the principle, you know, uh, of the foundation of the Christian faith in verses three and four. And then today what we're seeing is he gives us the example of that. The principle would be this. He says, let nothing be done, verse three, through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. He said, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. And remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing specifically about two women who are in the middle of some issue that's created disunity amongst themselves and amongst the church here. And so Paul is going, hey, you know what? You want to fix this? You want things to be right? You've got to get, you know, I tell you all the time, keep Jesus between you and everything else. Make Jesus the main thing. You know, Jesus is the main thing and keep him the main thing in your life. And so he gives us, you know, as an example of what really humbleness is and what humility is, what sacrifice is and what service is, he points us as, as the exact word will demonstrate to us. He points us to the ultimate example, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And, and again, 
and these are some of the, probably the most profound, some of the most powerful words that really encapsulate, you know, who Jesus is and what he's done for us in a way that, like I said, when you get it, it's kind of an aha moment for you because you'll understand why Jesus is so highly exalted and why he's given a name that is above every other name. And I, and when I study this, you know, and I, and I teach it, a lot of times people go, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that because again, there's, there's so much teaching with, especially from the cults that are out there. We think about particularly in, in our, our, our time is Mormonism and Jehovah witness. If they ever come to your door, the, these passages of scripture with regard to the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is completely God He's 100% God, but he's 100% man as well. That becomes so confusing, you know, in the world today. But yet, it's not confusing if you just simply read the text of Scripture, if you read your Bible and you understand what God is saying just in, in the simple text that you're reading. You, again, you can't read the gospel account. You can't read the Bible and not understand in the simplest way that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he's God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing us back to here. And again, if you're going to understand, though, like I said, what Jesus came to do and what he's done for you, you have to understand who he is. That's the great challenge. Uh, I point you back to, you know, Matthew chapter 16. It was, it was an interesting point that Jesus was making here because it's the same question that he's asking today. He's asking me. He's asking you. Just as he asked his own disciples there, it says this in, in Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, the, Jesus had started his public ministry, and there were challenges to who he was. See, the, old, the religious Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that there was, God had promised a Messiah. They didn't believe that Jesus was it, okay? But they, they didn't question that one was coming. So this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples is predicated on what the Old Testament teaches about what will precede uh, the coming of the Lord. So each one of these people, it makes sense to a Jewish mindset here. And remember, Jesus' primary audience, first and foremost, he said he first came to the Jew and then the Gentile. Remember when Paul started his ministry, he would go to the synagogue first, they'd kick him out, then what would he do? He'd start a church next door. That's kind of how the flow went. So it says, when he came to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am the son of man? Who do they say the son of man is? He said, so they said to him, some say John the Baptist, okay, because they knew that what? There was going to be a pre-runner. Somebody was going to be coming before the Lord. So there was a significance to John the Baptist. Some said Elijah, same thing. It was prophesied Elijah would come before the coming of the Messiah. It says others, Jeremiah, uh, some say the prophets. And it says, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And you guys, that is so, so critical, a question that each of us have to answer in our own heart. Who do you say that he is? Because some people will say, and you talk to them, if you've had a Jehovah Witness come to your door, if you had a Mormon come to your door, they'd go, well, I believe Jesus is a good man, right? They're not, is he a good man? You go, absolutely. Some would say, I believe that he was a prophet. That's, that's good. But can a good man save you? No. Can a prophet save you? No. There's only one person who can save you, and that is God himself. Because Scripture says there's only one who can forgive sin. Who can forgive sin? God himself, okay? And we all know, as the Bible teaches us, as we recognize it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? It's death, yeah. But the free gift of God, of God is life in Christ Jesus. And so understanding who God is is critical 
to your salvation. It's not that you just go, well, you know, people are sincere. As long as you have a faith, you know, no, that's not what the word of God teaches. And again, it's not trying to be confrontational in a negative way, but it's willing to be confrontational in a positive way to what? To save someone's life. And so Simon Peter in verse 16, he answers Jesus and he says, you are the Christ. Well, what does Christ mean? Messiah, the promised one. So he's, he's making a connection here that Jesus isn't, that's not just his name. You know, that's who he is. That's what he came to do. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. He said, the son of the living God. Well, what did that communicate? The son of the living God was to say that he was equal to God. Okay, so it wasn't somebody, oh, he's the son of God. Well, if he's God's son, he's God. So, you know, you'll they'll talk to, whether it's a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, you'll talk to other faiths, and they'll say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, you go, but he actually did, all throughout Scripture. Like I said, I'll cover some of these today with you, because it's important, because you have to understand, who have you and I put our faith in? Because if it's not in God himself, then we, as, as Paul would write to the church at Corinth, because if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, he said, and, and he died and, and he did not rise again as he declared. He said, then we of all people are to be most pitied because we have, we have believed a lie. We should just stop today. You should quit coming to church. You should just go out and eat, drink, and be merry. He says, for tomorrow you surely die. But we don't because why? Because we have a hope. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ. So he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it says in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. See, would you agree that people underestimate Jesus? They go, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Like, ah, he's a good man. You know, he, he's even a messenger, you know, from God. But those descriptions fall terribly short in describing who he is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, which is a claim to his deity. Like I said, the Mormons, they believe that Jesus was what? That he was a created being, okay? So he can't, he's not God. Well, they actually believe in a sense, because if you want to, I can encapsulate Mormonism in this sentence, and it'll just show you how far it is from the truth. See, when people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's just important that you believe. So let me ask you this. Do you believe this? This is Mormonism. In short, as man is, God once was. So what they're saying is that as we are today, God was once a man. Okay, so we get that. We go, okay. And then they say, so to finish the sentence, as man is, God once was. As God is, man shall be. What, that's, what is that saying? That Jesus was once a man and became God. We are men and women now, and if our works, you know, if you go through and read all the aspects of Mormonism, if our works are righteous, we too shall become God. Wow, that goes back to the very garden. The enemy hasn't even changed his lie, and you go, so is that, a, is that true? And you go, no, not at all. Is that a saving truth? And you go, no, that's a damning truth. Their actual belief, if you want to take Mormonism a step further, believes that Jesus and Lucifer are actually spirit brothers. Don't get that in scripture. And that ultimately, to break it down, is that God the Father, like Jesus, planned better. And so Lucifer, his spirit brother, got jealous and came to earth and tried to mess up his plan. And that's Mormonism in a nutshell. Jehovah's Witness, on the other hand, they believe 
that Jesus is none other than Michael the archangel in, in the flesh. And you go, that's not what the scriptures teach, but, he, but he's not God. But he, he's, he's a good man. And, and again, in their New World Translation, to go back and read John 1.1, 1, 1, our translation, New King James, the original, you know, you think of, of in, as God gave it to us, was in the beginning was the Word. Word was what? With God. And the Word was God. Yeah. Well, they put an article in front of God, the article A. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. You go, wow, is that, is that a big difference? And you go, yeah. And, and there are truths that, like I said, it's like, you know, being off one degree will take you, you know, off into oblivion. But that's how the enemy works, a little subtle lie. And so Paul is bringing this correction here. He's bringing this truth, this realization, because if you understand who Jesus is, there's a security in that. There's a hope in that. There's a future in that. You go, why? And you go, because when Jesus hung on that cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then ultimately his last words before he says he bowed his head and he breathed his last. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The last words he said were, it is finished. Your salvation and my salvation were secured, not because of your good works. You could never do enough good works to make it to heaven. I'm so saddened when I meet people that think good works get them into heaven because they'll never have the security of what God wants us to have as his children, the security of his love, that what he did on the cross was complete. We can't go all the way into, you know, everything today to look at, you know, one of the reasons Jesus came as a man was you studied the Old Testament, you know, kinsman redeemer, to be a goel, to be a redeemer, you had to be of the like kind, you had to be of the same family, the family of, of mankind. Jesus had to come in human flesh to save human flesh. He had to come in the likeness of men to save mankind. That's the biggest reason why he came in human form, so that we could be saved. But it wasn't because of what you and I have done. Actually, what you and I have done caused him to have to go to the cross. He shed his blood so that we could be saved. And so Paul is appealing to that with here's people in the church that are now suffering from disunity is in a sense, he's saying, you know, the, the best thing that we can do is let this mind be in you. It's like, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus. Because when I get my eyes on Jesus, I realize, you know, I should have been on that cross, not him. And why am I judging you? And why am I being so harsh on you about your sin? When Jesus himself said, you know, to me, to you, to all of us, he said, get the log out of your own eye before you try to do what? You know, get the little splinter out of your brother's eye. But we tend to see all the things in the failures in everybody else and not in ourselves. And so Paul is appealing to something. He's like, you know, okay, you want to get this fixed? We don't have all day to go down every single road of every single problem. He goes, but there's a great way to fix it. There was an old bumper sticker that used to say, Jesus is the answer. I love that. Because really, you go, well, then people would go, what's the question? You go, doesn't matter. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. I love that. You know, within Christianity, he really is Jesus. Is really, is Jesus the answer? If we go, hey, what, what's the solution for the world's problems today? It's Jesus. Victor and I were just talking about this before service, you know, just praying for, you know, our government. You'd, you'd remind, you know, our, our commander in chief that, hey, you know what? This country was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Man, we, we need to get Bibles back into the hands of people. We need to help people come to a place where they understand the love of God 
and, and the hope that we have in God, that God can heal. He, again, we can vote for all kinds of things, but you know, his word says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he goes, then would I hear from heaven and do what? Heal their land. I mean, there's like a one-stop shop. You go, hey, Jesus really is the answer. And that's what Paul is, is alluding to here. And so when you, you think of all, all these, you know, religions that are out there that take the focus away from Christ and who he is and what he claimed to do. That's why it's so important. If we do not understand who he is, how are we ever going to have security in what he has done? That's why this is so, so important. And again, you think about one day, you know, the Bible says it's appointed a man to die and then face judgment, right? Because you and I are going to be judged by our answer. Jesus is asking you today. He's asking me, who do you say that I am? And it's not that one day we're going to people, I can't wait. I've heard people tell me, I can't wait, Pastor Mike. I'm going to stand before God. And I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I want to be there. That's all. I, you know, I'm just like, that's like, I hope I, you know, I know it's not the right attitude, but you go, I'd love to, I'd love to see that exchange, you know, that will take place. Because who you say Jesus is, does that change who Jesus is? No. But understanding who Jesus is changes who we are. Amen. That's what's so, so powerful about this. And, and here's the key. If I understand who Jesus is, and I really understand who Jesus is, does that make me responsible to him? Yes. If I understand who Jesus is, does that make me accountable to him? Yes. And so you can see why people don't want you and don't want me and don't want the world to understand who Jesus is. So that way, in the sense of, you know, submitting ourselves to him and his kingship and his lordship, then we can, in the sense, be the captain of our own domain, so to speak. Verse five goes on. It says, let this mind, he says, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, we say this all the time. You're never more like Jesus than when you love. You're never more like the devil, you know, when you don't. You'll hear that, you know, you might hear someone say, uh, you're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. You're never more like the devil when you don't forgive, right? You can say you're never more like Jesus than when you serve. You're never more like the G never more like the devil when you're selfish. You know, just those kind of truths, okay? And those are all those are all true. Those are all truisms, okay? And so pride kills joy, and Paul recognizes that pride will 100% of the time kill the joy in your life. Because again, we somehow we feel like we're entitled to something. And Jesus, you know, you think about, we have a, a whole generation of entitlement, you know, victimization here. And, and you just don't see that, you know, in our relationship with the Lord. And so Paul is going, hey, don't focus on culture. Don't focus on society. Don't focus on yourself. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the cross. And so here's Paul reminding us, you know, that Jesus, and why? Because he's God. He isn't just a good man. He's not just a prophet from God. He is all those things, but he's the second person of the Trinity. God, the son who humbled himself by doing what? By coming in human flesh. So he's a choice. He says, let this mind be in you. We have a choice. Choose this day, as Josh would say, whom you're going to serve. So he's, in a sense, telling these women here in the church, choose this day in whom you're going to serve. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of, you know, the failures. Get your eyes off the faults and get your eyes on Jesus. 
And what a difference it'll make. Verse six goes on. It says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And I love this as you break these words down in the Greek language, it becomes so rich here because he's describing for us the pre-incarnate existence before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? So he's, he's pointing out that Jesus is eternal God. That word being there in the Greek, it describes the part of man that's unchanging and remains the same. So that's, that's what Paul is reminding us here. He's saying that, you know, Jesus' divine nature didn't cease when he came in human flesh. It, Jesus points to this. So when people say, well, Jesus never said. Jesus never said that he was God. He never claimed to be God. And you go, no, he did. But let me give you a few passages of Scripture. You might want to write these down. John 10, 30. Jesus said what? He said, I and my Father are what? One. One, one in essence. John 14, 9. Remember, you know, Philip, you know, Philip's going, you know, let, let me just say this. Have you ever, have you ever asked God to do something to prove that he's real in your life? You don't have to raise your hand. We probably all have. I remember, you know, as a kid going, Lord, if you're real, just turn the light on and turn it off. I'm laying in bed at night, you know, Lord, just flick the light one time. If you just flick the light, I'll know that you're real. And did he do it? No. You know why? Because I'd have been praying the same thing the next day. You know, and then, okay, Lord, one more time. You know, one more time. You know, if Jesus coming, living, dying, rising again, Jesus said, if that's, if that's not enough, nothing will be enough. That's what the writer of Hebrews reminds us. There's nobody coming behind him. Jesus is either it or there's nothing. Okay? And so, again, put our hope and our trust in him. So, Here's Jesus in John 14, 9. It says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip? Because Philip's saying, okay, Jesus, we believe in you and we believe in the Father. He goes, but if you really just want us to be totally sold out, show us the Father just once. Flick the light. Show us, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? He says, Philip, have I been with you so long? <laughs> he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? That, that word form there that he came in the form that Jesus exists in the form of God. It's speaking of the nature of God, not, not a physical shape or an image there. You, you think about the Greek language here again. He, Paul, he could have used the word schema, meaning to change, you know, that, that there was this change that took place, but he doesn't use that because that would mean it changed from one thing to another. That's what a lot of people believe. The Gnostics, remember, in, even in Jesus' day, the Gnostics believed that you could do anything with your flesh because you only serve God in your spirit. So the body was nothing. So you could be involved with any kind of immorality, sexual drugs, didn't make any difference. And that was okay because as long as you worship God in your spirit. In Jesus' deed, he was completely God. He was completely man, 100% God, 100% man, no failure, no sin in it. So Paul doesn't use the word schema there. He uses the word morphe. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. There was a transformation that took place, but that change was only on the outside, meaning that he added humanity to his deity, okay? He never ceased being God. He was always God. Have you ever met someone who was either in an accident or had some kind of disease and maybe had to have a limb amputated or they were disfigured and, and people would tell them, they go, it's okay. Who, who you are on the outside isn't who you are on the inside. You're still you, right? You still have your personality and thank God for that. You know, you think about, you know, John was teaching in Proverbs, the, the Proverbs wife. What does it tell us about her? 
this woman who says, this is, you know, beauty is in vain, right? But a woman who what? Fears the Lord. She shall be what? Praised. It's the inside out. Peter reminds us the same thing. Don't just worry about adorning your outside. There's nothing wrong with adorning your outside. That, that's totally fine. He didn't say that, that. He just said, but don't just merely worry about the outside, but worry about what? The inner person, the hidden person of the heart. And that applies to both men and women. Okay? Just worry what's going on on the inside, because what's really going on the inside is going to impact what's happening on the outside. So he uses that word morphe there. Again, Jesus didn't change on the inside. He didn't cease being God. He just merely, like I said, added humanity to his deity. That word robbery there means to take by force. We get that. Jesus, what it's telling us, he didn't consider it robbery. He willingly didn't cling to his privileges of his deity. He, he didn't exercise all the prerogatives that were available as in the Godhead, but he entrusted himself completely to the Father and through the Holy Spirit. It says he was equal. That's an interesting word there. He's, he's, not, he's not doing what the Mormons say, that we're going to work our way to heaven. He's not, he's not working to, to gain equality. It says he already has equality. That, that's a hard thing for you and I to accept. You know that, that God can't love you anymore than he loves you right now? Isn't that amazing when you really sit and think about it? Because we know in our human term, we go, well, I could make myself what? More lovable, right? And that's true. You can make yourself more lovable. But God can't love you any more than he loves you right now. He, he loves you to the hilt. He loves you to the fullest degree. And, and, that, and, and he wants us to understand that because that's how, we, when we understand who he is, then we can understand what he does and how complete he is, how perfect in all of, her, all of his ways. You think about that, you know, the, to think that, you know, God would speak to Jeremiah and say, I've never had a bad thought about you. I know the thoughts I think towards you. By a show of hands, how many have ever had a bad thought in their life? Just by, okay, is there a few of us? Okay. Here you go. And what does God say? I know the thoughts I think towards you. They're good. You go, only God could do that. And you go, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Only God and his thoughts towards us are good. They're good all the time because he sees us through the blood of his son, justified, sanctified, ultimately to be glorified in him. Like I said, some will say that, you know, Jesus never said that he was God. Well, he, he says he doesn't regard equality a thing to be grasped, right? Remember there in Matthew chapter 9, it's one of my favorite stories in, in the New Testament about Jesus doing a healing. There's two of them that I really like. This one is where these guys, they cut a hole in the roof. Jesus is inside and it's really crowded and they can't get in. They got a friend who's paralyzed, who's crippled. And so they get up on the roof. You got to love this about guys. So they cut a hole in the roof and they lower this guy down. You can just picture that like somebody coming down through through the ceiling in a Bible study, right? And there's those other guys there and he's going like this down the thing and they lower him right and he's swinging like right in front of Jesus. You just picture this. And you got to, Jesus is like, you know, wow, this is awesome. And he, and he looks and you've got in every church service, every church that gathers, there's always somebody who's a skeptic. There's always somebody who's a non-believer. There's always somebody who's looking to be critical as opposed to accept and to believe. They're looking for what can we find wrong. They're looking for the fault that they can find, right? It's, it's in every crowd. It's in every church. It was even when Jesus was teaching, they were called Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. 
So they're sitting in the back of the room. That doesn't mean anything about you guys that are sitting in the back. I just don't want, maybe Robert, Robert, I want you to know. Robert, I'm looking at you. No. So, so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're sitting in the back and they're doing what? They're waiting for Jesus to trip up. They're waiting for him to slip up. They're waiting for him to say anything that they can hold against him. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to give it to him. So they lower this guy down, he comes in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Now you think, why is the guy there? What, why is the guy being lowered in front of Jesus? What's the reason? Go ahead. What? I'm deaf. He'd be healed. To be healed, right? Yeah, to be healed. So what does Jesus say? Does he go, you're healed? No. He says, your sins are forgiven. Well, that gets people's attention really quick, right? Because what do the scribes and the Pharisees know about forgiveness? Who can forgive? Okay, just know this. Jesus never claimed to be God. But he just said, your sins are forgiven. And just so that you guys know that the Son of Man can do all these things, he goes, take up your bed and walk. Because what was more difficult? Was it more difficult to heal or was it more difficult to forgive? Now, obviously, it's more difficult to forgive because only God can forgive. So right away, what do they claim that Jesus is doing? You see this throughout the New Testament. He blasphemes, right? Because what does that mean? That means he's claiming to be God. His audience knew that he was claiming to be God, but you'll have the Mormons, you'll have Jehovah's Witness, you'll have other people of different faiths. They'll go, Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> no, he just said it right here. He just said, I forgive you because they knew only God could forgive. And then he goes, and so that you know, go ahead. The easy part is take up your bed and walk. We'd see it the other way. No, not, not Jesus. You can look at your note taker, you know, maybe go back, read John chapter five, John chapter eight, you know, John chapter 10. There, there are a few examples there. Another really fun one. Remember the Jews are telling them, you know, by relationship. And I, I get this the reason it means so much to me. I was raised Catholic. Okay. So when people would ask me, you know, Christians, they'd go, they'd start to share the gospel with me. I'd go, hey, I'm Catholic. And I, I've shared with you, honestly, I didn't know what it meant to be Catholic, but I was Catholic. That was my answer. I said, well, my mom was Catholic. You know, and she got me baptized like right when I was born. So I've been baptized and the Bible says you have to be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven and go to heaven. And I've been baptized because my parents baptized me. So I'm going to heaven because, you know, my mom prayed and my mom was a Catholic. My grandma was a Catholic, Irish, Catholic. Let's go hand in hand. It goes all the way back. So I, I thought I was secure. I didn't know anything about a personal relationship with God, but I was claiming my Catholicism based on my family tradition. Well, that's what the Jews did. They said, Abraham is our father. Father Abraham. We even do that, right? He's the father of faith, but he was also the father of what? The Jewish nation, Jewish people. So they're going, Abraham's our father. And so Jesus is going, hey, we'll just know this. Your father Abraham, what did he say? He goes, he rejoiced to see my day. Oh, and they went, oh, they got mad. And they went, what are you talking about? I mean, he's, Abraham, he's been dead for thousands of years. How, how could you say that? And he said, he rejoiced to see my day. And he went on to say what? He said, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> what did he just claim there? For everybody who says, Jesus never claimed to be God. If you said, I am, what did God tell Moses? Tell them what? 
I am. Are you seeing the connection like I am? This is not rocket science, okay? You have to not want to believe, okay? It's like right there. John writes it. He goes, all these things are written so that what? You can believe, okay? He wants us to believe. He wants it to be that simple. If you just read it, you go, yeah, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's God. God who came in human flesh, okay? Verse 7 goes on. It says, but Jesus made himself of no reputation. It says, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. No reputation. He, he emptied himself. He didn't lose himself, okay? When God chose to reveal himself, he did so in a human body. I, I love this. He had a human tongue. That human tongue spoke healing to people, right? We, we read it all through scripture with a human tongue. He spoke healing. He spoke life. He spoke, Lazarus, come forth. He brought the dead to life with his tongue. With a human hand, he healed the sick. He touched people. When he walked into a house with human feet, they were dirty. And they needed to be washed. When you think about that. The body that went to a cross was beaten. It was crucified. It was human. It was a physical body that rose from the dead. It was a physical body that ascended back into heaven. It's a physical body that's seated at the right hand of the Father today. It's a physical body that will return one day to this earth. A body. A body. If you read verses 6 and 7 there, it's an interesting theological word. Theantropic. The theantropic nature of Christ comes from two Greek words. Theos means God and uh, anthropos, anthropology, man. God has two natures. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. The inopric nature of Christ. He couldn't become less God. It didn't diminish his deity at all. Yeah, he gave up rights, he gave up privileges, but he added to his deity humanity. That's what he did. And it says then he, he took, taking, it says taking. And I love this. Maybe, maybe this will be the easiest way for me to explain something that's so complex that you see the Mormons get it wrong, the Jehovah's Witness get it wrong. There's so many people, even Christians. They go, I don't, I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't see Trinity in the Bible. You won't see Bible in the Bible either. But think about this. How many have seen the show Undercover Boss? I almost titled the message this. Undercover Boss. Well, Undercover Boss is about a show. It's on television where either the owner of the company or someone who's usually the high up, it's usually the CEO, and they go undercover. And so what they do is they disguise them. They go in, they go to like a Hollywood set, and they put, you know, they're bald-headed. They put a really long-haired wig on them. They change their eyebrows. They might even glue a, a mustache and a beard that you can't pull off and and it's, it looks real. And then they change the way that they dress, the way they look. They put sometimes, you know, fake tattoos on. They'll do it, you know, if they don't have tattoos, they'll, they'll cover them and they'll send them in. And they take some of the most menial positions in the company and they do it for one week. And they're learning as much as they can about their company undercover that maybe people wouldn't tell them, but they experience it for themselves. And you think about that, that's exactly in a sense what Jesus did. He came undercover, okay? God himself put on a disguise, you might say, and came to us 
in human flesh. That was his disguise. Well, one of the things I love about Undercover Boss, if you've ever seen it, it, it can be a tearjerker. I mean, there was one, it was, I, I like sports. It was Medell uh, Sporting Good Company. They're big in the, in the uh, East Coast. And uh, the owner comes in and, and he has one of his employees that's basically, she's a homeless person. She's living in a homeless shelter and has got a daughter. And, he, and, and this guy can't even do, this is unlike Jesus, but he, this guy can hardly even do the tasks, right? He, he's the CEO, the owner of the company, but, but he can't even keep up with the things that need to take place in his own company. And he's humbled by that. And he, he takes the form of a bond servant, you know, in his own company. Nobody recognizes him. And at the end of the week, there's five days at the end of the week, he invites all the people who he served with and alongside, he then reveals himself to them. And this, there was this woman who was a very hard worker. And, and he was so moved to the point of tears. She just kept telling him, you know, hang in there. It'll get better. And here was a woman who was basically homeless with a child. And, and it so moved him that in this episode, he, he, he gave her $250,000 to buy a home and to get out of that homeless shelter. And, and, and it's one of these things where then people, they look at it and they go, oh my gosh, they go, I didn't know that you were the owner because it seems so unlikely. You go that, well, I mean, what would the owner of the company come? You know, they had one, it was a show like, um, uh, a store like, um, Golden Corral. And the first job that he took was scraping dishes in the back, right? You think it doesn't get any worse than this. And he's washing the dishes. And basically the guy that's the manager then tells him he's going to have to fire him. He's going to fire the, the owner of the company because he's too slow. And he goes, man, it's just so, so humbling. But, but he won everybody over. And that's what wins people over in the show is that the greatest amongst them became a servant. And he became the servant of all. And there's such a biblical principle in that. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't, the, didn't cease to be God, just like did the owner of the company cease to be the owner of the company when they went undercover? No, they still had, but they laid it aside for those five days. And they did what? They entrusted themselves to the company as a whole. And they learned a great deal. Well, Jesus didn't need to learn anything about the company, but he did come to bless us. He did come to save us. He, he came to make a difference in our life. And that's one of the, the good things about that show is at the end of the show, usually the owners then make an investment into all those people because they hear and they learn about them on a what? A personal basis. And I love that because that's what Jesus, Jesus is here today. You know that? It's not just that, you know, it, it's this concept of God. If you open your heart to him, he lives with, inside of you. He comes by the person of the Holy Spirit to live inside our heart. He speaks to us. He encourages us. He comforts us. He's not afraid to give us a kick in the pants when we need a kick in the pants. But he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. He'll never give up on you. And so here's Paul going, he's reminding the church, he's reminding this woman that, hey, you know what? It's easy to, to get offended. It's easy to think that, you know, you should have this position and you should have this one and you should get this and you should get this. He goes, but if you want to get things, you know, correct in your life, is get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus. And then think about what Jesus did. That's why Jesus said in communion, right? He said, when you take this bread and you take this cup, he said, you do it in what? In remembrance of me. He said, as often as you do this, remember me. Remember what? Remember that I loved you, that I, that I set aside heaven. I mean, he could have stayed in heaven and been worshiped for all eternity without doing anything because he's God. He's subject to no one. 
but he humbled himself and he took on human flesh and submitted himself to us that he might win us to himself. And Paul is, is bringing this out. Verse eight, Philippians two, he goes on and says, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now you think about this. Angels, they're servants, but right? They're, they're not in the likeness, created in the likeness of men. But Jesus humbled himself to the lowest <laughs> rung on the ladder, mankind. He took on human flesh. Remember, appearance or likeness. It refers to his outward appearance. And what does scripture tell us about Jesus' outward appearance? What did Isaiah say? It says that we would look upon him. Would he be beautiful? Would he be handsome? It says, no, he wouldn't even attract your attention. And there's a reason for that. Because think about this. If Jesus would have been the best looking guy on the block, like you, you see a lot of pictures of Jesus where he's blonde haired and blue eyes. You know, he looks like he's a California surfer, right? He's chiseled, you know, you go, that's not what scripture says that Jesus is. They said, when you looked at Jesus, said you would have probably turned away. You wouldn't even have looked at him. You wouldn't get him a second thought because you think about it, you go, because someone, you know, again, if they were, they had this, you know, mystique about them, they had this prestige about them. People, oh, I could see why, you know, people followed him because uh, look at him. I mean, look how good looking him because that's the way of the world, right? Isn't that what the world does? We have our icons, right? Oh, I want to be like them. That's the model. That's the person. Oh, we want to be like them. It's the externals, right? That's why, that's, that's why. Proverbs would remind us, you know, charm is what? Deceitful and beauty is in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. It's what's on the inside. So when he talks about this appearance, you know, don't, don't think for a second that it was going, hey, you know, yeah, he, he was to do because that's why people would follow him. So God chose someone who in the outward appearance, nobody would follow. He was so disfigured then ultimately at the cross he was despised. But on his throne in heaven, Jesus doesn't take orders from anybody. He's enthroned in glory. So to become obedient to the Father's will, what does he have to do? He has to come in human flesh. That's the only way he can accomplish the Father's will. It says, and he was humbled, humbled, humbled by taking on human flesh, humbled by being born where? Not in Beverly Hills, but in Bethlehem, in a manger. He was born, he was humbled by being born into poverty. He was born by being a child who had to be submissive to his parents. Think about this. Think about the God, think about this one. The God who created the heavens and the earth. Colossians says, everything that was created was created what? What was it created? It says it was created by him and for who? And for him. And it says, and nothing that was created exists apart from Jesus, right? but yet he humbled himself. What did he do for an occupation? Anybody know what Jesus did for an occupation? What did he do? What was Jesus' job? Carpenter, yeah. So what did he do when he was a carpenter? What did he do? What do you think he did? What did he make? Tables, chairs. See, I think he waited for Joseph to leave. Joseph would walk out of the room and Jesus would go, table. He walk over and he go four chairs. Why? Cuz he's God, right? He spoke the word into existence, right? 
No, but he humbled himself. He had to make it. Can you imagine that? You, had to, you, you spoke the world into existence, and now you're, in a, you're sweating in a carpenter's shop. You know how humiliating that would be? It's impossible for us to comprehend it, but I think you can, you can let your mind go there. Think about Jesus. I mean, my, one of my favorite of all time healings in the Bible. Remember the guy who was born blind from birth? Born blind at birth, meaning he has no eyeballs, okay? Just sockets there, scriptures. He's just got eye sockets. And what does Jesus do? He spits on the ground like only a man would do. Spits on the ground. No, but do you think, what is, what's going on here? What happened in Genesis when God created man? What did he do? He took, he took dirt, right? So you women, understand this. You're not dirt. You were taken as a rib. You are of a higher, more refined material. But men, every one of you, you're a dirt clod. That's nothing. No, no just think about that. You know, no, you were born. So, But Adam is dirt clod that God speak life into, right? So the Jews knew that because they, they, they studied the Bible. They knew the Torah. They knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. They knew the law. So they would have known. They understood. And so here's Jesus. He spits on the ground in the mud, in the dirt, picks it up, rolls it in his hand, it says. What is he doing rolling it into his hand? into a ball, an eyeball. That's so awesome. And he takes that and he sticks it in the guy's eye, then does it again, sticks it in his other eye. The guy's got mud all over his face. And then Jesus tells him, do what? Go wash. Go wash in the pool of Shalom and then go show yourself to the priest and offer a sacrifice that's worthy. You go, wow, he got his eyesight. Do you think there was any Jews in the audience there that didn't make the connection? Only God can make something out of dirt and make it come to life. He was making the connection. Jesus is God. Jesus came in the flesh, but yet he humbles himself. But we get these glimpses of his deity here. So, so amazing. And yet he demonstrates the ultimate humiliation by doing what? Going to the cross to die in my place, in your place. Crucifixion. Understand this about crucifixion. When you think about humility and Jesus, and now we're understanding what he did when he died. We understand who he is and what he did when he was crucified. Remember, crucifixion, okay? The Persians are the ones who created crucifixion. Okay, They're the ones who came up with the, the practice of crucifixion. But I've shared with you many times, usually around Good Friday and Easter, but it was the Romans who actually took that and perfected it. And they, they took it to the highest form of cruelty and pain that you could inflict upon a human being. They saw, the Romans saw that it was so, so evil that they made it a law against Roman citizens could not be crucified. They saw it as so demeaning to a person that they forbid their own citizens to be executed that way. The Jews saw it in the same light. Deuteronomy and both Galatians, I think it's Galatians 3.13, tells us the same thing, that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. So when the Jews saw Jesus crucified, they saw him as cursed. How do you, how do you worship and love and follow someone who they believed was cursed of God? He became a curse for me and for you. Should have been you, should have been me there, but it was Jesus because he humbled himself to the point of death death upon a cross. And it says what? 
It says, therefore, God also gave him, has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every other name. Think about that. The word highly exalted there means super exalted. I mean, there's no higher position to it. Now, this is what's interesting. And here's something that most people don't think about. When you read this, you think, oh, God gave him the name Jesus, which is above every other name. No, that's not the name that God gave him. It says, God gave him a name which is above every other name. The name is Yahweh. He gave him the name Yahweh, God. God. And at his name, then the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's interesting. You know, you think about that. It's a statement the father's making of, because it's saying the father, the name Jesus Christ, he's deity, 100% God, 100% man, co-equal with the father. No mistake about it. If he's not God, you're still dead in your trespass and sin. If he is God, and he is, death couldn't hold him down. That's why three days later, that's why when scripture says, that, you know, in the Psalms that God wouldn't allow his holy one to see corruption. He wouldn't be in the grave for four days. There was no, there, there was no decomposition taking place in Jesus because death couldn't hold him down. He is who he claimed to be. And what he did was he conquered sin and death for me and for you. That's why we can say he is the resurrection and the life. Verse 10 goes on, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. What's he telling us there? The whole world, again, like I said, it's appointed a man to die and then what? Judgment is brought into submission to the son. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? He's Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. And again, here's the interesting thing. And it's the sad thing at the same time. Everybody's going to do this. Every single human being that's ever lived on this planet is going to recognize Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To some, to you that are here today that have believed on his name and placed your hope and trust in him, the Bible says you're not going to be disappointed. One day you will see him face to face and you'll be able to confess to him face to face that Jesus is Lord. But for those that have not believed in him and not trusted in him, and you think about that's going to be a day of complete resentment and complete despair. You think about that, but they're going to have to say it. Like people say, I'll never bow my knee to God. I'll never say, and you go, no, you will. And unfortunately, you're going to see him for who he is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but it'll do you no good because it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Verse 11, and we close with this. He says, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we started, we end. Paul said, let this mind be in you. You have a choice. You have a choice to love God. You have a choice to honor God. See, our submission to Jesus, it can't just be verbal. It wasn't for Jesus. Jesus said, Believe the words that I speak, but if you can't, he said what? Believe in the things that I do, because in essence, where we get the phrase, walking the walk and talking the talk, right? Because he said, whatever I do is one and the same. He goes, I, I only say the things that I'm going to do, and I only do the things that I say I'm going to do. And he goes, so makes it easy to believe. And that's what it did. And that's what it should do.
And for you and I, that's the connection he's making here. To these women, he's saying, you know, if we're going to be unified, it's not going to be, oh, that we're unified. We're just going to say it. He's going, no, we're going to do it. We're going to demonstrate it in loving submission to one another, in humility before one another, preferring the other better than ourselves. It's a race to the bottom, you guys. That's what he's saying. The greatest amongst you is a servant. Don't lose sight of that because don't lose sight of Jesus because that's exactly who Jesus is. And so let our submission be demonstrated in both our words and in our actions. That's what he's exhorting the church to do. Jesus said this in John 5, 23. He says that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. It says he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So Paul's saying, you know what? The incarnation should be our motivation. It's not who we think we are. It's who Christ is. Jesus should be the motivation for all that we do in this life, is to be pleasing to him. Paul's joy, he declared, was serving Jesus, was doing everything in Jesus' name. And that's where you'll find your joy. It's where I find mine. It's not when I'm selfish. It's not when I do things to please myself. It's when we sacrifice and we give and we serve looking out for the interest of other people. That's what Paul's reminding these women in the church. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on Jesus. It reminded me of a song. I'm not going to sing it to you. If I was John Jones, I would, but I'm not, and I'm not going to attempt it. But um, there was a song came to mind yesterday as I was studying this. It was, remember the song, Make Me Like You? Make Me Like You, Jesus? It says, you know, make me like you, Lord. Please make me like you. Make me like you, Lord. Please make me like you. You are a servant. Make me one too. And I always love this because the women came in on this part here and it was the echo and it said, oh Lord, I am willing, do what you must do to make me like you, Lord. Please make me like you. Let's make that our prayer this morning. Lord, make me like you. Do what you must do, Lord, to make me like you. Because that's, isn't that what Paul told the church in, in Philippians chapter one? He said, he who has begun this good work in you is faithful to complete it. What, what's stopping him? It's not Jesus, right? It's me. So Paul's going, Mike, and to you, he's saying, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. You know, And you gotta, you gotta let it. And maybe there's something today that you're going, man, I gotta let this go. I gotta give this up. Maybe it's a, it's a you know, issue with another person in the church. Maybe it's an interpersonal relationship. And he's got, I gotta, I gotta get this right because it's that thing that's robbing me of my ability to get to that lowest rung. And it's my pride. It's not their pride. It's me not wanting to swallow my own. And asking God today, Lord, make me like you, because he modeled it perfectly for us. And that's the best way we get it fixed, is knowing who he is and what he's done. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We'll pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, it is not just a song, but Lord, it could be the prayer of our heart today. As the song goes on, it says, Oh, Lord, I am willing to do what you must do to make me like you, Lord. Please make me like you. And Lord, we can't stress that enough today. Thank you, Lord, that you are a servant. And it is our prayer. Cry of our heart today. Make us like you. Give us that love, Lord, for you, for one another. Lord, that all the world could see. <laughs> Lord, we, we recognize it's what's so needed in the world today. We talk about love and what love means. And it means so many different things to so many different people. 
but your word makes it clear, God is love. And so, Lord, we ask you, Lord, help us as we prayed last week to see the world through your eyes as either people who love you and just need to be encouraged in you or to see people who have yet to come to meet you. And Lord, may our life, may our love, may our sacrificial service, may our humility illuminate you in their heart and their mind. Forgive us, Lord, for our selfishness. Forgive us for putting our our needs over the needs of others. Make us like you, Lord. Please, Lord, make us like you. We pray in Jesus' name. We all agreed saying, amen, amen. Well, 